If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 20. And as we always say, if you don't have a Bible, turn with us on your phone or any device that you have. And uh, I believe that, but I would encourage you to bring a Bible. All right, bring a Bible. It's a whole lot easier not to be distracted uh, when you've got the Bible in front of you rather than, huh, I wonder what's going on on Facebook. I wonder what's happening in the news. That phone dinging at you. We're in Acts chapter 20 as we make our way through this book. We've been at it for quite some time. We'll be at it for a bit more. The book of Acts. If somebody pressed me and said, Mitch, out of all the book of Acts, what's your favorite part? I would say Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and following. This passage that we're going to look at today. I've just always enjoyed reading it. I've never really taught through it other than very briefly, and so this morning will be a first for me. Put my map up on the screen if it's not already there. We've been following the Apostle Paul, and he is on or coming to the end of his third missionary journey here in Acts 20. Uh, You'll remember that we've said Paul, on his third journey, came from Antioch, made his way revisiting these churches, And God brought him to Ephesus where he stayed for well over two years. And when this time in Ephesus came to an end, he left Ephesus, came up to Troas, came over to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. And and during that time, he was picking up the money that these Gentile churches were going to give to the Jerusalem church to help them in their poverty. And he was settling the Corinthian issue that was going on in 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians, and he had his heart set on going to Rome. So he came to Corinth, and it was here that he wrote Romans in anticipation of his hopes to go there. He was going to make a direct trip back to Jerusalem, but he found um, that there was a plot for his life, and so the blue line, he made his way back this way and came to Troas. That's where we had him last week when he preached all night long, and we remember Eutychus, the young boy who was sitting by the window, fell out dead, and Paul raised him back to life again. And now we're going to see the Apostle Paul is going to come down, not really to Ephesus, just south of Ephesus. And this is where we find him. Look in verse 13. But we, that's Luke and the others who were with Paul, Going ahead to the ship, set sail from Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. We have no idea why Paul decided that he wanted to go by land while Luke and the others went by ship. At least one has surmised that maybe knowing that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem, as he has already intimated and as he will make very plain Maybe it was a time of great burden upon himself, and he just wanted that time alone to pray. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos, and the following day, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, 
for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem when thousands upon thousands of Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would come to Pentecost. Maybe he knew that it would be an incredible opportunity to share with his people again of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them. We noted last week that Paul is finishing up his time with these churches. We looked at a parallel passage in Romans 15 where Paul said that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, he had fully preached the gospel of Christ and that his work in these parts was finished. He wanted to go to Rome and be helped by them to go to Spain. And so what we saw last week as Paul was visiting these churches, spending time exhorting them, and as he spent all night with the church in Troas and now with these elders from Ephesus, he thinks this is the last time he will see them. It's weighty. In fact, if you just want to glance over at the end of this, when Paul is saying farewell, they kneel and pray, they weep aloud, embrace Paul, repeatedly kiss him, grieving over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. So he calls these church leaders and gives them what may well be, he thinks, his last words to them. Here's how I've broken it up. See what you think. Verses 18 down through 27. Let's ponder Paul. He's going to show himself an example, as I see it, in, in service and in ministry of the word. He's going to show himself an example in suffering and show himself an example in the best I could come up with thoroughness. So let's watch his example of service. Verse 18, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recounts his service among them, and I think provides it as an example for these elders to ponder. He calls himself a servant, or he says that he's serving the Lord. It's a verb that comes from that same noun, doulos. A servant of Jesus. It's used over and over in the New Testament by Paul, Jude, and others. They were servants of the Lord. The eternal Son who came and lived and died and rose and was ascended and is exalted to the Father's right hand. He is the Lord. And they are but His servants. 
They listen for his word and obey. He says that it was consistent from the first day how I was with you the whole time. And we know that Paul spent as much time or more time in Ephesus than he had spent anywhere else. From that first day and the whole time, those weeks, those months, even those years, they knew of his ministry among them, and it was a ministry of endurance. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Paul served in humility, not in pride. The men and I on Friday mornings have been studying through 2 Corinthians, and, and Paul will speak of boasting in his weaknesses. And time and time and time again throughout 2 Corinthians, he shows how he is but an earthen vessel. His opponents in 2 Corinthians would boast of their strength and boast of their wisdom, but not Paul. He would boast of his weaknesses, and he would cry out to God, and God would say, my grace is sufficient for my strength is made strong in your weakness. And through tears, you can imagine the time he spent with these believers and this church and the many heartaches of ministry of the trials that the people went through and that he would share with them in that and cry with them and hurt with them the pains and the heartaches of ministry and the trials, the ups and downs that came along with it, the plots of the Jews over and over and over again. Paul enduring in his service to the Lord and to the church. And in verse 20, it was courageous. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. The idea of shrinking is, is to be afraid. It's, it's to be ashamed. It's to shrink back, to grow quiet, to, to not say what needs to be said. He'll say it again over in verse 26 or in 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The Apostle Paul would, would later write to his young protege who was leading the church in Ephesus at that time, Timothy, and he would say to him, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Don't shrink back, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of Christ and his apostles. In a, in a phrase, stand firm. Don't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was prof profitable. And he was diligent, teaching you publicly and from house to house. And it was centered in the gospel, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood that this gospel was for all. I just noted 
Romans 1.18 to 3.20, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That passage from 1.18 all the way to 3.20 is to show that the entire Gentile world is without righteousness in and of themselves and the Jewish world is without righteousness in and of themselves. And therefore, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Jews and the Gentiles, that is, everyone, is in need of this gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Friend, if you're here today, this gospel is for you. It's for everyone. So Paul is an example for us in his service towards people, the tears, the humility, first day, the whole time, house to house, and his ministry of not shrinking back in the ministry of the word. As I pondered upon this, I thought of those wonderful verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is writing back to the Thessalonian church. He's defending himself again against accusations, and he said, but we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Paul would give his life and his teaching of the word of God to the people. Secondly, he's an example in suffering. Watch verse 22. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. This is probably coming from New Testament prophets. We know that it will explicitly in our next chapter. But along the way, apparently, as Paul is making his way through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth, there's a growing sense that bonds and afflictions await him. In fact, we said when he got to Corinth, he wrote Romans. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. As he's closing the book of Romans... And he's heading back to Jerusalem to deliver the financial gifts. He charges them to pray for him. And he says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you by the will of God and find refresh, refreshing rest in your company. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. 
even when he's in Corinth writing to the Romans, he knows something's coming. By the time he makes his way back to the Ephesian elders, he's able to say, bound by the Spirit on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, if that were you and me, what would we do? I'd like to believe that all of us would do what Paul's going to do. But I think it's worth just asking the question. What would we do knowing that by faithfully following Jesus, we are walking into trial, trouble, prison, not knowing what's going to happen? least the temptation would be er, don't think I'll go to Jerusalem think I'll hang out here in Ephesus for a while y'all got a place for me to stay because city after city is telling me something's happening when I get to Jerusalem and what's going to happen is that bonds and afflictions await me. Well, you and I might not have a New Testament prophet telling us what is coming, but we have a New Testament scripture that says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ may well and most assuredly will cost you. Following Jesus faithfully, increasingly it seems to me and probably to you in our culture, following Jesus faithfully will cost you. It may well cost you some friends, it may well cost you a reputation. It may well cost you a job. It may well cost you some money. It may well cost you, you fill in the blank. The question is knowing that. If I'm going to follow Jesus faithfully, and it may well cost me, what am I going to do? Am I going to shrink back? But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. There's something more bitter in Paul's mouth than death. And it's dishonor. 
Paul would rather die than dishonor Christ by shrinking back, growing quiet, and not faithfully following him. Paul says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. If I go to Jerusalem and get bound and afflicted, and if it costs me my life, fine. All I want to do is finish my course. All I want to do is finish the ministry which I received from Jesus. Mitch, do you consider your life of any account dear to yourself? Will you deny Jesus to keep a friendship, a reputation, a standard of living? Or is there something, Mitch, more bitter in your mouth than the loss of any of that? And it's the dishonor to Christ. Paul died to himself that he might live for Christ. His intention was to finish, to hear at the end from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, not from the greater culture, well done, good and faithful servant. He wanted to be true to the message, solemnly testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Paul's talking to elders. He's talking to leaders in churches. He's calling upon us to be courageous in the face of suffering. I want to be faithful to this and I don't want to trim my sails to the prevailing winds of culture. And I hope the same for you. And it may well cost us. But will we die to ourself and tend to finish strong and be faithful to the Word of God? If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Paul wrote 2 Timothy. It was his last letter. And he knew that death was right around the corner. And he said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. An example in service, an example in courage, or in suffering. Now verse 25, the best I can come up with, an example in thoroughness. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. That is certainly what Paul thought at that time. That was the assumption that he was under by the leading of the Spirit through the words that he was hearing. 
we believe, though, that indeed he was able to come back here years later to these Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. It feels like I'm no longer going to see your face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. When he says all men, I think he has in mind there the church there in Ephesus. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. When Paul was among them for those months and even those years, as he was declaring to them anything that was profitable in teaching publicly and from house to house, it's not that he covered every verse of the Old Testament. But he covered everything vital to life in Christ. He was thorough. He had taught the church and equipped the leaders well enough that now that he was leaving and probably will never see them again, he felt that he had taught them enough, the whole counsel of God, that they were equipped enough to carry on the life and ministry of the church. And I sure hope that I would be able to say something very much like this. That I have declared to you the whole purpose of God. Such that if I were taken out this afternoon, this place would be strong. And this place would be well equipped in the Word of God. And who He is and what He has done and what He calls His people to and what we can look forward to. That all of that has been covered time and time and time again. The whole council of God. Verse 28 and following. So the first was ponder Paul. I think he shares these things for us, his example as a servant, his example in suffering, his example in this thorough ministry of the Word of God as, as examples for leaders and for all of us. But now he says explicitly, watch for wolves. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased the New American Standard says, which he purposed with his own blood. The good scholars, I think, here would say, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own, with the blood of his own, meaning the blood of his own son. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, he may have in mind these, these elders, but 
he probably has in mind, from within the church there in Ephesus. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul was certainly aware of the danger of false teachers. Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And time and time and time and time again throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul, we know that he was dealing with false teaching at every turn. They will speak perverse things or crooked things or, or twisted things contrary to something that is straight and something that is true. These wolves would come in and say, that, no, that's not true. In fact, this is something perverse or something twisted. They want to draw away the disciples. They want to pull them in a direction that they should not go. And so there is this great responsibility laid upon elders, leaders within the church. They are called here overseers. They're to be on the alert. They're to keep watch over the church. And the verb here is used to shepherd that's used in Ephesians 4. It's used in 1 Peter 5. Of, of the role of elders and overseers is that they are to shepherd. One guy summarized that in four words. I think it's pretty good. They're to know the sheep. They are to lead the sheep. They're to feed the sheep. In particular here, they are to protect the sheep from wolves. Paul says first, be on guard for yourselves. He would write to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. That a leader within the church has to watch himself the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 and even 1 Peter 5 serve as continual reminders to church leaders that this is the kind of life that we are to live. It's not just the kind of life that the church family can look at and say, yes, he's qualified to be an elder. Certainly is that, but then it's also passage of Scripture to go to over and over and over again as an elder is to be on guard for himself or pay close attention to yourself. The Apostle Peter would remind elders in 1 Peter 5 to, that they are examples to the flock. They're not perfect, far from it. 
But hopefully they are men that you can look to and say, that's an example of someone who seeks to joyfully follow Jesus and help others to do the same. And so they, they, they're on guard for themselves and for all the flock. One of the qualifications of an elder in Titus chapter 1 says this, that he holds fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, who must be silenced and reproved severely so that they may be sound in the faith. One of the qualifications for an elder in a church is that he is sound in the Bible and in theology. Holds fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the, with the teaching. Why? So that he can exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's the wolves. So take care of the flock, Paul says. And I think there in verse 28, he heightens the importance of this to shepherd the church of God. He could have just ended the sentence there. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with the blood of his own son. He's reminding these elders the cost God the Father went to in the creation of his people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What did that son do? He purchased a people with his blood. And I think he heightens the importance of this in verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert. So be on guard. Be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Finally, so let's ponder Paul. Let's watch for wolves. And I think maybe a good way to sum up the rest is cultivate contentment. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He commends them. He entrusts them to God. Again, he is leaving and is not sure, does not believe he'll ever come back. And I, I, I entrust you to God. I, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. We've seen that word. We saw it up there in verse 24, the gospel, the grace of God. And here it is. He commends them to the word of his grace. It's as if Paul is, I think, Submitting them to the care of God. In some sense, he had been there. 
and his two and a half to three years with them. I don't want to say too much, but he was caring for them. Now that he is leaving, I commend you to God. It, it, it would be like you or me on our deathbed with our children, knowing that our time has come. We're probably not going to see them again until, and what would you say? One of the things you would say was, listen, I've been here all these years, but I'm leaving. I commend you to God. I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now listen, there's never been in the history of the church church leaders who would ever try to use their position within the church to make money. That's a joke. A few of you got it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, qualification of an elder, that he is free from the love of money. In Titus chapter 1, qualification of elder, he's not fond of sordid gain. 1 Peter 5, qualification of an elder, he's not fond of sordid gain gain. Back to 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, an elder is to be free from the love of money. And he comes back to it again in chapter 6 for really all the church that we are to be free from the love of money. Why? Because it's a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I think on the, poll, on the whole, Paul is saying to these church leaders, be content. And be generous. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Maybe for a ministry... Maybe for a church, the application is to be above reproach financially. I'll just say among our elders, I'm the only one that gets paid by Redeemer. We have five lay elders. But any of you that may be wondering, I do not set my own salary. I'm not one of those guys who's in control of the money around here. It says, guys, this is what I'm going to make. Like it or not, that ain't it. I don't set my own salary. When you all give, whether back into those boxes or into those baskets or online, I don't know who gives what. I don't collect the money. I don't count the money. I can't sign a check here at Redeemer. Now, I always do say this. 
We do, as staff members, have Redeemer Community Church credit cards, but obviously with a credit card, all of that goes back into the system and can be watched closely. I like to think that my wife and I give generously to the support of Redeemer Community Church. And I try to be content. I try to fight the love of money. Paul is an example for us in his life, in his teaching, in his suffering, in his care for the flock, in his commitment, in, in his contentment, and in his generosity. As I pondered upon this more this morning, the relationship, and I'm not sure if I'm seeing it correct, but Paul, as he closes it, he says, I commend you to God, be content. I commend you to his care, be content. Maybe it's something like this, that when God is caring for you, you and I don't have to be so hopped up to care for ourselves. And boy, are we not hopped up in our culture when it comes to money and caring for ourselves. And then I thought of Hebrews 13. Listen to this, and we'll almost close. The author of Hebrews said, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. How awesome is that? You and I can be free from the love of money. We can be content with what we have when we know that God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. God is for us. So again, just to close it, what an incredible final words from Paul. If, if you've been with us, we've said that, Paul, that Luke records for us these sample sermons of the Apostle Paul. In, in Acts chapter 13, we got a sample sermon, if you will, of how Paul would address a Jewish audience, Jewish unbelievers. Later in the book, in chapter 18, we got a sample sermon of the Apostle Paul to a Gentile audience there in the Areopagus, Mars Hill, in Athens. Here is the only example in the book of Acts, a sample sermon of Paul to Christians. And in particular, to leaders within the Christian church. Let's follow his example in service, in suffering, in thoroughness. Let's watch for the wolves. Let's cultivate contentment and generosity. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, pray for Chris Long and Chris Hollister and Brian Carey and Aaron Doe and Forrest Bierkus, myself, men that you have raised up to be elders, overseers here at Redeemer. May these kinds of things grip us. May we be wonderful examples for the flock of Redeemer Community Church in our service, in our lives, in our ministry of the word, in our suffering, in our protecting of the flock, in our contentment, in our generosity. May we, by your grace, lead the way. Lord, Paul's real passion is that he's going to be gone. And he wants this local church in, in Ephesus to be strong and healthy. And he believes that they are and that they're ready. May it be so of us. The church family of Redeemer Community Church, strong and healthy and ready to serve the Lord, to share his wonderful good news here in our city. And Lord, for any friends here today who, who have never known of the grace of God that he sent his son to shed his blood upon a cross for their sins, might you open their heart this morning to see the greatness and the glory of God, to see their own sinfulness, to see the grace of God and the love of God in sending his son, Jesus, to be a savior. And might they turn from themselves, might they repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins reconciliation to God, adoption into his family, eternal life. We will pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.